You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. My next guest is one of Maine Magazine's 50 Mainers. This is David Driscoll, who is an artist, curator, educator, and scholar who specializes in African-American art. He has contributed significantly to art history scholarship by examining the role of the black artist in American society. It's really great to have you here. Thank you. Good to be here. We're lucky to have you here in Maine, and I know you have a studio in Falmouth, um, because you're really kind of a world traveler. You, you've been a lot of places. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been very uh, fortunate to have had um, a chance to travel pretty much all over the world, um, specifically in Africa. Uh, I was re- recounting and trying to remember. I know I've been on in, in and out of the continent more than 10 times, different, at least 10 countries. Um, South Africa, Nigeria, Senegal, etc. And as far east as China and Japan. And of course, um, I had interest in uh, the African diaspora as it related to South America and Central America. So I've been in that, those parts of the world as well. So a lot uh, moving around. You originally came to Maine, um, actually, as part of your education, mm-hmm. from what I understand, 1953 or thereabouts? 1953, that's correct. came to the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture in, uh, really in Madison, but it's Skowhegan, <laughs> um, as a scholarship student from Howard University. And the school was about six years old when I came. And now it's in what it's sixty fourth year or something like that, and uh, and I've been pretty much connected to Skowhegan over the years. Um, I made friendship with the Cummings family. Uh, Bill Cummings was one of the founders of the school, and it was actually on his farm land that the school was founded in nineteen forty six, and so. Uh, even before I became fairly closely connected to the school as uh, a teacher, trustee, governor, uh, what have you, I would go to visit the Cummings uh, family and we um, became very good friends. As a matter of fact, I was saying to someone the other day, they were asking how did I get involved in collecting antiques and specialty things about Maine. And I said, well, the credit goes to Bill Cummings because he was the one who took me out and said, this is very special to Maine. 
um, these jars won't be around much longer, 19th century glazed, uh, you know, ceramic jars. If you can afford one, buy it now because it's going to be expensive. So it was that kind of information, the shaker chairs and things, which I didn't know anything about until I was exposed like that. And so there's been a richness in our lives uh, by having come to Maine the last 56 years, summering here and being able to add so much of what Maine has as special. And I don't think people always understand that. There's something very special about Maine, especially for artists. So that's a dimension in my life that I think has been very, very important. Why is it that you don't think, why don't people understand how special Maine is? Well, I guess a part of it is my own artistic overview of believing, first of all, that art is very special and that Maine has been a, a, a special, an especially welcoming place for artists beginning in the 19th century. When artists wanted to escape from New York and Boston and places like that, they'd come to Maine. They were well received, they were let alone. Nobody called them <laughs> in and say, you gotta get off this property or anything like that. Monhegan and Deer Isle and places like that, they were welcome. And so uh, I'm not sure that it's the duty of the locals to uh, fully understand how important this place is. I think somebody has to come from the outside to inform them and say, you know, this place is very special. You can come here and be on your own, do what you want to do, and not only will Maine hear about it, but maybe the world will hear about it. So I think a part of that is that sense of independence that Maine has always had from the time it broke away from Massachusetts <laughs> to proclaiming its own place um, in global affairs. We interviewed Ashley Bryan in his mm -hmm. um, home on Cranberry Island, and mm -hmm. he also came to Maine through the Skowhegan School. That's right. He's he's older than you. He came yes. through a few years before 90, you did. He's 94. Yeah. So he's, what, uh, at least 12 years older than yeah. that. Mm -hmm. And I think that he came through right after the war. He did. He must have been in one of the earlier years of the Skowhegan School that it he was, came through. I think he came the very first year in 1946, um, or very close thereafter. Yeah, he, uh, and um, he, you know, he left an indelible impression at Skowhegan because he was one of the artists chosen to do a mural at the South Solon Meeting House uh, in the 1950s, early 60s, which uh, is, I guess, one of the closest things that we have to um, a uh, the notion of how churches are decorated in the European style. The frescoes, the entire church, it's a small church, of course, and uh, you'd have to know where you're going to get there. Uh, but it's outside of Skowhegan and South Solon, the South Solon Meeting House. So he was one of the artists who was chosen to be a muralist for that uh, project to create frescoes. And I thought it was important. It was important to me because this was a national competition. 
And he was a young African-American artist who was chosen, which of course, uh, I think says something very, very special about me. It's amazing if you, if you dig a little bit to know the people really of international status who have mm -hmm. chosen to make their homes here, make their art here, mm -hmm. um, and for such a small and rural state. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, that's one of the things that I think is so special about Maine. Once you come here and find out about the freedom of expression, the way people receive you, and the chance to work on your own, you kind of never forget it. You go out and talk about it. You tell other people about it. In 1972, the fall of 1972, I was a guest curator for the Smithsonian Institution in Washington at the South African National Gallery of Art in Cape Town, South Africa. Well, there were several strange contradictions there. First of all, it was apartheid, apartheid of the highest order. I had grown up in the South, in a segregated South, part of the United States, and I could see the relationship between segregation and apartheid. And yet, the director of the then National Collection of Fine Arts at the Smithsonian, Dr. Adeline Breeskins, uh, she could have chosen a hundred or more scholars, curators, somebody from the Metropolitan or from Museum of Fine Arts in Boston to take this exhibition to the South African National Gallery of Art, but she insisted that I should take it. And I think she was trying to say something very special by doing that, that I had uh, a certain kind of understanding of what we were going into, and that I had a sensibility about the art because it was the work of a black artist by the name of William H. Johnson. Now, as we look back in history, it's almost ironic that I would be taking the work of an African-American artist, a black artist, to South Africa, apartheid <laughs> South Africa, uh, an artist who'd grown up in the segregated South in Florence, South Carolina. I would be taking this artist's work to the South African National Gallery of Art to be shown to that public. <clears throat> but I think there was some political, uh, uh, let's say some politicizing being done on both sides. United States saying, look, look who we are. We're democratic, we can democracy, and blah, blah, blah. And South Africa was saying, well, we're not quite as bad as you think we are. And so even though the South African National Gallery of Art had been open to black citizens prior to that and people of color, they didn't go because they didn't feel welcome. And of course, I can remember in this country when the same thing was evident. Growing up in the South, you didn't just go to a museum as a black person. You had to go on one day. And that, that was referred to as Negro Day. <laughs> no whites there except the people who worked there. So I say all of that to say that art has been politicized a certain way uh, to fit the norms of whatever the culture and the country is. But in the larger issue, art is the one thing 
that humanizes us to the extent that we become human and forget about all of these other political issues and things like that and just say, this is really perhaps the greatest tool of communication we have, music, art, dance, writing, etc., etc. And Maine has been so welcoming to all of these artists, you know, Longfellow, you know, <laughs> the great tradition of writers who come to Maine as well. And so the artists, including Ashley Bryan, who is not only an artist but a writer and a, a puppeteer, uh, could have gone any place to make his home. He was chair of the Art Department at Dartmouth for many years. But he chose little Cranberry Island to be <laughs> over there doing his work on his own. And I, you know, I looked around to see where I could settle when I came to Maine. I knew I wanted to be near a city. Uh, and I wanted to be, to have access, say, to Skowhegan and places like that. So it seems that Falmouth was the answer. Tell me about your own art and your own evolution mm -hmm. as an artist. Well, I started out, um, like all artists, doing traditional academic work, uh, trying to learn all the principles, to draw well, to see color in all of its magnificent ways, and to, uh, from the very beginning, I thought that I could have my art be message-oriented. By coming to Skowhegan in 1953 and working with Jack Levine, social commentary artist, it stamped my mind as though, oh, this is what I really want to do. I want to have my art say this, change the world, look at this, the way he was commenting on um, the way Congress acted, the MacArthur era, and so forth. And I wanted to say, now let's make art that changes the world. Well, <laughs> I uh, did a few compositions that I would consider social commentary in nature. But it was a great lesson for me because that really was not what I ultimately wanted to do. I wanted to eventually give my expression of beauty in the world, of, of beautiful things. Now, social issues can be beautiful, yes, but they can also be very trying. And the one painting that has stood out in my life more than any other that uh, attests to my interest in social commentary art was a work that I did in 1956 uh, commenting on the death of Emmett Till, uh, uh, the murder in 1955 in Mississippi. And so I uh, uh, engaged in creating this composition, and it's now, you know, it's a celebrated work, if I can say that, at the National Museum of African American History and Culture at the Smithsonian. It was one of the works that they put up at the new opening. And 
to me, it was somewhat cathartic in that I got this out of my system because I didn't, after that, I knew I didn't necessarily want to labor with that. I wanted to paint, go out and see nature, the beauty of uh, the world in other ways. And so Maine offers a lot of that. However, in my teaching, I had to, and I taught for 44 years, college and university, I had to try and look out for the welfare of the students and really be counseling as well as advising in the sense that, you know, many students come in the first day, they want to do an abstraction. And you have to either have the uh, nerve or the guts or whatever it takes to say, well, you need to learn the, the principles first. What are you abstracting from? Abstraction is the essence of something, and it means that you've gone all the way to get there. And how far have you gone? So as a good teacher, you have to be able to bring all of that into focus and not be afraid to tell them, no, no, that's not the way today. <laughs> Let's learn the principles, learn the uh, fundamentals. And then we, after a period of time, we'll have some reason to talk about and look at abstraction. Now, if you're going to look at it just from the point of view of color, well, the world is full of beautiful color. You can do whatever you want with it. But um, don't try and solve problems with your art before you learn the art. That's what I learned, that uh, if you're going to engage in the notion of solving problems, make sure that you have the tools and the command of those tools with which to do it. And I think there are always other media that may be able to do it better. What about cinema? What about filmmaking and things like that? It's, um, you can go back and recapture it over and over again. Once you put that paint on the canvas, it's there. It's not going to move. You can bring a, a different vision, but the visual vision is always the same. However, with other media, the writer, the dancer, you know, the motive aspect of it may never be the same. That's such a, one of the good things about uh, forms of expression like writing and, and jazz, the improvisational quality that's there. So you can always be growing and learning. And I'm not saying you can't do that with painting, but painting is a stead and a steadfast medium. And you have to understand what it's doing in order to uh, make it work at its best. So I had to go through all of those things in my life uh, to try and come to the conclusion as to what it is that I want to do. So over the years, I think I have settled on the notion that uh, what I consider to be beautiful is perhaps the most refreshing thing that I can bring to art. And I hope that's what my art does. It seems that if you're trying to create a piece of art that has a message mm -hmm. attached to it, that there's a very intellectual overlay on that. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're trying to create a piece of art that is just relaying your feelings of beauty, mm -hmm. then there's a very different sense around that. 
Yes, I of course I think all art emanates from the same source, from the notion of creative ideas. That's true of music. That's, you want to create a sound that maybe nobody's heard before. You want to imitate the sound that you heard from a bird that you never <laughs> heard before and so forth. Uh, with dance, you may want to imitate the the motive aspect of a um, movement that you saw a gazelle take a leap and or a deer or something like that. And um, we are the observant creatures of the world, and somehow or another, our art should be. Uh, the sum total of what we experience. And we add uh, new dimensions to the world by this kind of observation, be it visual, motive, auditory, uh, whatever. And so I think that it all begins with the intellectual process, the idea, at least that's what Plato tells us. <laughs> and uh, so it is up to us individually as to how we carry it beyond the idea stage. We've got to know the rudiments of the trade that we're in. We've got to know the materials with which we work. And we should have good judgment enough to know when we have arrived at the conclusion of what it is that we say we are doing. Um, it's great to have the critic there to reinforce that, but we should be the first critics ourselves. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I'm always a little leery when I see somebody signs their name so-and-so and so, master artist, you know, they've what else is there for you to learn if you're a master? <laughs> you know, I um, I was honored to be uh, elected to the National Academy of Art, and I really feel a little strange at times putting in a behind my name. Uh, the Academy likes for you to do that because it's good for them, but like. Am I really at that stage where I can pat myself on the back and say, yes, I'm there? So the intellectual process is first and foremost in all of the arts, but the most important thing is to be able to develop the intellectual discourse, which sends it out from you to somebody else. And then it has meaning. Um, you know, concrete meaning. I'm interested in this idea of conclusion because when I spoke with Eric Hopkins and mm -hmm. I went to his studio mm -hmm. on another island mm -hmm. in Maine, um, there were many pieces that to my admittedly untrained eye seemed finished. Mm -hmm. But to his eye, they weren't. How do you develop that understanding of completion? Oh, that's a good comprehensive question. <laughs> I'll do my best at it. But um, I think 
that's where the whole concept of training is so important. Now, obviously, we have the so-called naive or the outside, outsider artists and, and so forth and so on. I always say outside of what? Because the artist, to me, is always emanating from that creative source that we all have the potential for having. doesn't necessarily mean we all have it. And sometimes I think study and skill, of course, can bring it to a certain level. But, by the same token, study and skill are two of the instruments by which we come to that stage whereby we know best what is and what isn't. Is it there or is it not? So, study in the biblical sense to show thyself approved and also have the discipline to train your own eye, to train your ear, to train whatever there is for this, this instrument of contact, to look around in the world and see if you are in step with the order of what you're in. Uh, if you're not in step with it, why? If you're not in step with it, maybe you haven't finished the course. And so I think you have to be diligent about pursuing the rudiments of the trade to the extent that you know this piece lacks something and you're not ready to put it out there because your mind keeps telling you, no, no, no. Not in the sense of perfection, but your mind keeps telling you there's another stage beyond this, and you have to be willing to go there. Now, if you're not willing to go there, that is perhaps the closest thing to a form of selfish indulgence that you can have. It's almost like nobody can tell you anything. You know you're there. That's not good. Um, philosophically, it's not good. Aesthetically, it's not good. And for your own personal growth and well-being, it's not good. At 86, I'm still learning. I'm open to learning. I want to learn something every day. And I think that will prolong whatever creative um, longevity I have. Well, this is a very interesting conversation. I have so many other questions that I could ask you um, for the purposes of the podcast. Mm -hmm. I'll finish by asking, what is it that you've been surprised by in your life the most? Oh, hmm. I think it's probably something that's still growing on me, not something that came upon me um, all of a sudden, but something that I've grown into trying to understand is how this great gift of life that we all have 
that is so inviting and is so informing, is so wonderful, that we manage somehow to turn living into a problem amongst ourselves. Not just the color line, but class in politics. However you mention it, we it seems that with that free will to choose comes that other side to choose unwisely as well. And if ethics and morality, religion, spirituality, all those things that should, we think, should be guiding forces based on our human history, if they are to play any role at all in our lives, it seems to me that the guiding force would be do good, love one another, try and make the world a better place in which to live instead of dividing it up into parcels and always looking at what is in front of us as a problem. Can we at some time look at it as a challenge, a creative challenge, and perhaps help to remove some of the things that we uh, see before us that hinder beauty, truth, and goodness. I've been speaking with David Driscoll, who is an artist, curator, educator, and scholar who specializes in African-American art and is also one of this year's 50 Mainers with Maine Magazine. It's really been my great pleasure to have you here today, and I appreciate your coming in. Thank you for inviting me. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.